From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, it's the first anniversary of the insurrection of January 6th. To defend democracy now, we need the Senate to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. John Nichols will comment on the current efforts to change the filibuster rules and on proposals to expel members of Congress who aided or abetted the insurrectionists. But first, Mike Davis on Omicron. Is it the kinder and gentler COVID we've been waiting for? That's coming up in a minute. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Omicron variant of the COVID virus is spreading like wildfire. The world is averaging nearly one and a half million new cases every day this week, and that's twice as many as a week ago. But this variant is notably less lethal. People are significantly less likely to be hospitalized and die from it. So is it the kinder and gentler COVID we've been waiting for? For comment, we turn to Mike Davis. Of course, he's written many books, including The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, published in 2005, and The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu, and the Plagues of Capitalism, published in 2020. And of course, he's written many updates on COVID for thenation.com, where he's a contributing editor. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. One strategy of viruses for survival is to become kindler and gentler and not kill their hosts. And seems like Omicron is doing just that. The virologists call this attenuation. And that's the solution for people who won't get vaccinated. They'll get Omicron. They're most likely they'll survive and develop antibodies. And that will make their future cases less severe. And then the original Fox News argument it's just like the flu, will become finally true. COVID will be with us, but at an acceptable level, we could get COVID booster shots along with our annual flu shots. Life will return to normal starting sometime after Omicron peaks, which will probably be this month. Do you agree with this optimistic assessment? No, not really. To begin with, I think we all have had to recognize that coronaviruses, the COVID-SARS-2 virus, is full of tricks and surprises. And it's evolving in a huge uh, evolutionary space, given it's three times as transmissible as uh, the Delta variant. And it'll burn its way through entire new populations which have been unvaccinated. You know, I mean, look at the hospitals. The ICUs are overwhelmed. A week ago, there was still a 1,000 Americans dying every day from COVID. So Omicron is not like idiots such as Marco Rubio claim, you know, no worse than a cold. And even the flu analogy, well, the flu kills 40,000, 50,000 people 
a year and seems to be on the brink of evolving uh, new variants, avian variants that could be as deadly as the 1918 uh, Spanish flu. But for all that, yes, uh, it does seem to represent a transition to reduce virulence. And this accords with the classical paradigm. More than a century ago, the pioneering American bacteriologist, Theobald Smith, argued, and this is really incredibly in advance of his times, that the most virulent diseases were new diseases. That is, they had jumped over from another species, or they were recombinations of different variants of some virus, or for that matter, uh, bacteria. Now, the problem with being super virulent as you kill off your host is you reduce your own reproductive chances. Fewer uh, viruses are, are transmitted. So this could lead even to the extinction of the microparasite itself. And there are many uh, examples of that, the incredibly dangerous outbreak of pneumonic plague, for instance, during the construction of a railroad in Manchuria in 1912. And it killed like 90% of the people who got it and disappeared simply because it had wiped out towns full of railroad workers. But anyway, Smith went on to say that evolutionary theory would predict that a competitive advantage would be given to those strains that traded off virulence for transmissibility. A one-sided destructive onslaught would evolve into more stable and symbiotic relationship between the host and the parasite. And he called this the law of declining virulence. And with many refinements, it remains one of the fundamental paradigms of disease ecology. So it's not surprising that so many experts believe that the mutations, the surprising number of mutations, that it produced Omicron are further proof of Smith's law. Unlike the original March viruses and then its various successors, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta, Omicron targets not the lower respiratory system, the lungs, but the upper respiratory system where it is most transmissible through sneezing and coughing and so on. And although it overwhelms much of the immunity produced by previous uh, exposures, uh, people who contracted uh, an earlier variant and those people who are, who are vaccinated, the T cells, which are mobilized through the vaccinations, seem to be doing a very good job of keeping it out of the lower respiratory tract, which has produced the devastating results, particularly in senior citizens, immune-compromised people, and also produced long COVID. Long COVID, to me, is the scariest thing about the new variant of disease. What do we know about uh, Omicron and long COVID? What kind of progress has medical science made in understanding and treating long COVID? Not very much. And I, I speak only as someone who, you know, regularly peruses the leading medical journals and their, their COVID websites. But it's far too early to say that we know, have any kind of comprehensive idea of Omicron. We know that it is, you know, less lethal, more transmissible, and mainly uh, affects the upper respiratory tract. 
Let me just quote from an article that appeared a few days ago in the British Medical Journal, one of the world's leading medical journals. The author says, even if Omicron does cause less severe disease, its infection rate could still have devastating consequences. Tim Spector, professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London, said, quote, if numbers skyrocket, it doesn't matter if the percentage of people being hospitalized or dying remains low, because it's about volume, not percentages. The higher rate of transmission, even in the vaccinated, could have devastating consequences. 100 people could continue to die every week. And as Smith himself so long ago recognized, a stabilizing trade-off between virulence and transmission host and parasite doesn't mean that an infection will become benign. Virulence may decline, but only to a moderately lower level. Darwinian logic suggests that the ideal equilibrium from the standpoint of the micropathogen might be a serious but not fatal infection that lasted for more than a week, thus optimizing the production of the virus. But on the other hand, there are great plagues that haven't shown any sign of the law of declining uh, virulence, tuberculosis, smallpox, and you might put AIDS in the same category. And coronaviruses, which for so long, for generations, scientists had taken to be very, very benign threats at most to, to, to humans. We now know that there's you know extraordinary reservoir different variants, different kinds of coronaviruses, uh, particularly in bat populations. And the environmental and the socioeconomic conditions that have promoted the emergence of new diseases and transfer of viruses from these wild reservoirs into human population, all that remains in place. This is why you know we have to recognize that we're not just living through a pandemic which will assume a mild mild form and then we forget about it. We're living in an age of pandemics. And there's a long line, almost like planes uh, <laughs> lined up to land at an airport, possible new uh, pathogens, which could be as deadly or as transmissible as coronavirus. Well, it's my job here to present the more optimistic and cheerful side of things. So I want to just take a step back and look at how nearly miraculous it was that vaccines were developed so quickly, at least two of which are proven to be extremely effective in preventing serious uh, illness and, and death uh, from COVID. This makes a lot of people very optimistic that in the future, biotech will be able to solve all the kinds of problems that you're talking about and that uh, science really does work. But is science applied? I mean, you may have the, you know, the research, the new technology, but will it become commonly available? Will it be available only to the very rich and not to the poor? And of course, one of the great scandals of the development of the two messenger RNA vaccines that have proven so effective has been the fact that Moderna was not only developed largely in public universities, but it got two and a half billion dollars from the federal government without a counterpart 
sharing, you know, in the profits of it. I mean, it was an enormous giveaway. You know, I thank God that I, you know, have had three Moderna shots. But the lack of any kind of real antitrust consciousness over this whole process. And the truth is that big pharma, which has to be bribed and subsidized and given public research to produce these vaccines, has become a major obstacle to the translation of revolutionary breakthroughs and molecular design and so on into effective medicine for the people. One of my greatest disappointments is how little progressives have been able to influence the debates about the pandemic and about the role of different parts of the private sector, including these uh, private equity controlled nursing home chains, which, you know, which thousands, tens of thousands of elderly people died unnecessarily. I mean, the right has almost entirely captured this debate. The nurses, obviously, you know, have been out there robustly picketing and reminding us that a lot of the conditions that were so catastrophic in early uh, 2020 still exist. In fact, in I think about nine days, Nurses United is going to have a national action because the Biden administration, people were incredulous about this, isn't renewing the emergency safeguards that it had applied after the inauguration. So nurses are still short of N95 quality masks, things like isolation and the number of patients per nurse and so on. This remains a, a walking disaster for healthcare workers. And I suppose most of all, uh, the failure has been that you would have thought in, in a health crisis of, of, of this scale, which has produced so much devastation to, to family incomes, that Medicare for all would really have taken off and become uh, a, a crusade. And there are obviously examples where you've had community labor coalitions, support groups for nurses, local actions. But basically, everything's been bottled up in the ominous bill instead of becoming a, a cause in you know, the streets and creating you know, national protests that could in some ways steal the issue from the far right. And it's kind of murderous, homicidal attitudes toward uh, the pandemic. So we've been talking here mostly about the United States. But of course, you've talked about the space for mutation of viruses that the virus finds outside the United States in the billions of people who live in the less developed world. That also needs to be a priority for, for Biden and for the developed world. Well, yes, I mean... What 2020 exposed was the utter failure of the World Health Organization, of the European Union, basically of almost every kind of transnational organization, apart from medical research community itself, which acted with, you know, astonishing solidarity. Chinese researchers in, in, in particular were extraordinary, the speed at which they conveyed information and data to the researchers. But otherwise than that, you know, it's been every nation for itself. It's been the rich hoarding the vaccines. And in, this in an environment where fundamental community health care, basic medicine, 
is still lacking for a large part, a large minority of human beings. And the question is whether both in the United States domestically and internationally, whether this pandemic leads to any improvements in basic health care and preventative uh, medicine. And the scientific miracles may be there, but the obstacles to delivering this to people are enormous. And in fact, you have to conclude that actually uh, the pandemic in some ways wrecked large parts of primary care. I mean, the number of rural hospitals that have closed, the number of people who haven't been able to get lifeline procedures, whether that's chemotherapy or operations, the number of people who now, with the expiration of the original Biden subsidies and protections, will face you know enormous dilemmas, unable to afford or access a lot of the medicines. So everything that was wrong with healthcare in the U.S. and with the relationship between world health establishment and poor people, all this has been exacerbated and gotten much much worse. It should have been the duty of progressives to take the offensive on on these questions. And it leads me to wonder, and I'm almost hesitant to say this, but whether the omnibus Build Back Better bill was not a mistake, because given the balance of power, you know, within Congress, I mean, if the election had turned out into a great democratic victory, which it wasn't, then maybe it made most sense to have a comprehensive bill. But in the existing situation, the healthcare reform and, and Medicare for all has kind of ended up on the back burner. Mike Davis, he's the author of, among other things, The Monster Enters, COVID-19, Avian Flu, and the Plagues of Capitalism. Thanks, Mike. We needed this. Thank you, John. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. On the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we have two conclusions. First of all, the attack on the Capitol was the beginning, not the end, of a violent movement to overthrow democracy in America. And second, the Republicans are working to steal the 2024 presidential election if their candidate doesn't win. And they're well on their way to passing the state laws that would allow them to do that. The best defense we have right now is the Democrats' voting reform bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. In his new book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis, will be published later this month. Hi, John. Hey, John. It's great to be with you. Well, the Freedom to Vote Act would expand voter registration and mail-in voting and end partisan gerrymandering. We also want to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to restore 
part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that gives the Department of Justice the authority to veto new voting rules in states with a history of discrimination. Both of those bills are awaiting action in the Senate. The Republicans' filibuster has blocked them. Chuck Schumer finally, after a year, said a couple of days ago, the Senate will debate and consider changing the Senate filibuster rules on or before January 17th, Martin Luther King Day. So where do we stand on changing the filibuster? Is it going to happen on or before January 17th? Well, let's begin with with an understanding that the term the fierce urgency of now (laughs) has not exactly uh, overwhelmed the members of the United States Senate. Uh, I am am shaking my head in, in dismayed agreement. Yeah, it's just, it's sort of surreal. You're like, wow, this is a crisis. It's a really, really bad thing. Democracy itself is at stake. And so in a couple of weeks, if we don't see some action, we might do something. That's kind of where we're at. I don't want to beat up on Schumer too much. I, I've interviewed him a couple of times about this, and I, I know the dance that he believes he is involved in with, with Joe Manchin. And that is that You know, you give Manchin a lot of time, a lot of space, uh, a lot of clarity that no Republican is going to do the right thing. And then you kind of put Manchin in a position where theoretically he might do what he has said he would do, which is back some protections for voting rights. But then you have the problem of Kirsten Sinema, who is more militantly opposed to altering the filibuster rules than Manchin is. And so we are still a good distance from where we need to be. Now, uh, in fairness to Schumer, while I criticize him for not being urgent enough on this and and for not really kind of getting to this point on January 17th of 2021, not 2022, that's when when they should have, you know, right at that critical moment after the attack on the Capitol, you know, in the moment of impeachment, that's when they should have locked in, you know, used their majorities to lock in some voting rights reforms, which then a newly inaugurated President Biden could have signed on his first day in office. But they didn't do that. So now we're here. And one hopes that Schumer is using these couple weeks to really kind of work cinema. And I think cinema is the most important one on this one to get her across the line so that she will uh, allow for a carve out on voting rights on this. But I've read that it's not just Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema who are holding this up. How many of the 50 votes are assured votes for changing the filibuster rules? Well, you open up the real can of worms there, John, because throughout this last year, Manchin and Cinema have served as sort of placeholders for a group of senior Democratic senators, uh, all of them, as best I can tell, uh, you know, folks who've been around for a while, at least a term or so, who are not particularly enthusiastic about altering the filibuster. That's that's a, a baseline reality. Most of them, I think, are sympathetic to voting rights. I don't, I don't think that's really the problem per se, but uh, they, they operate on a very kind of old-fashioned sensibility about the Senate in most cases. And then there's a couple who are afraid that if they alter the filibuster, it will become an issue in their re-election runs in 2022. I'd say there's about six of them. I think the senators from New Hampshire are a little bit shaky. I think John Tester from out in Montana is somebody that people keep an eye on, uh, although he's actually stood up and 
said and done some pretty good stuff. The two senators from Delaware who are very loyal to Biden have often been uh, very resistant to filibuster reform over, over the years. So you got a group there. But as I run down it, John, I, I kind of default to the position that uh, if Mansion and Cinema can be moved, then the others will come. None of them seem to me to be the kind of person who would say, oh, you've settled it all. It's all the pieces are in place. Now I'm going to throw a wrench into the machine. <laughs> One more thing. So the Senate rules have always said that a simple majority can change the rules, including the rule on the filibuster. Has this ever happened before? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of history on it. And remember, we used to, in the lifetimes of some living Americans, have a system on the filibuster where you had to get up and stand there and talk forever. You know, Strom Thurmond did it on, you know, defending, you know, states' rights and, and segregation and everything horrible. So uh, there was a, a change of the rules to make it easier for bad players to kind of filibuster without actually uh, filibustering. And so, yeah, the history is full of it, uh, full, of, full of examples of this. This can be done. It's not even that big a deal, uh, especially uh, if you do a carve out, you know, if you just say, well, we're just going to do it on, on voting rights. Uh, but I will tell you that the carve out is fraught with a certain amount of peril. And that is that if they do a carve out on voting rights, I think they are going to face pressure from people who say, you know, come on, you can't do it on racial justice and reform of policing. You can't do it on labor rights, the PRO Act. You can't do it on. So, you know, I I think that that's where, uh, while it's easy to do a carve out, uh, it does also open up, you know, the the next levels of pressure on on a host of issues. So we've posited defending voting rights is the most immediate way to protect ourselves against the changes that January 6th inaugurated in American political life. What do we know about the larger question of public opinion on what January 6th meant and what it was about? How many people actually believe American democracy is under threat? A lot of people believe it's under threat, John. In fact, uh, the numbers are, you know, roughly Two thirds of folks, according to some recent polling, will say that, yeah, they, they think that there's a real danger and they think that after the next presidential election, you could have violence. So, you know, that's that's a lot of people believe that there's also a shockingly large number of people who believe that's OK. And that's sort of the two sides of this coin. The clear majority of Americans do see a threat to democracy. Maybe not all of them think that that Republicans are the threat. There may even be some folks who poll and say, there's a threat coming from the Democrats. But the bottom line is there's a lot of people who see an instability. And then um, there is a, you know, a, a portion, and polls are a little bit variable on this, but there are certainly in the double digits and, and perhaps into the relatively high double digits of people who think that violence is either appropriate or somehow acceptable in these circumstances. These tend to generally be uh, very conservative Republicans. But uh, yeah, we're in, a, we're in an incredibly unstable point. And I think that, that the truth, John, is that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress really blew January 6th. They didn't blow it on, on uh, impeachment. They were right to move rapidly for impeachment. They should have moved more rapidly. They should have done the, the impeachment when they did in the House, and then they should have done the trial before Trump finished his presidency. They should have just moved immediately on that issue. They didn't. 
But then the deeper problem is that they didn't hold their own to account. Now we have this House Special Committee investigating that event and producing a lot of extremely important information about who was responsible for what that day. What, uh, what has that committee achieved so far? How do you evaluate their work? They have achieved some significant things, but they have done it in such a plotting way, such a slow way, that they have uh, kind of sucked the urgency out of a lot of this. And that's, that's really problematic. Again, that committee should have been constituted back in January of last year. The revelations that they're getting should have been gotten last year, not now on the one-year anniversary. Uh, that has allowed for a lot of misinformation to fill the void, a lot of disinformation to fill the void. And they continue to send mixed signals about how much power they have to uh, extract accountability once they find out about things. At this point, I, I hate to say it, but it seems to me that the committee is more of a record-keeping endeavor than it is an actual accountability endeavor. They're getting the information. It's profound. It is significant. It clearly points to wrongdoing, not merely by members of the Trump administration and President Trump himself, but also by members of Congress. And so this is a big, big deal. Uh, but the question whether they'll actually act on it is still very much up for grabs. And what that means, I think we're uncertain about. Well, now we need to talk about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which you have written about in a new piece that went up at the nation.com. Tell us about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, written after the Civil War, is very, very explicit. It says that if you engaged in insurrection or if you gave aid and comfort to those who engaged in insurrection, you, if you're an official who swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, cannot hold public office anymore. You're out. Well, in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was some application of it. But since then, you know, the 14th Amendment, that section, Section 3, has pretty much been kind of like read over. It, it hasn't been applied. But thankfully, there is a new member of Congress, Cory Bush uh, from Missouri, who actually read the Constitution and said, you know what? I swore an oath to this thing. I think I'm going to actually try to apply it. <laughs> and she has proposed that uh, when it there's evidence uh, that members of Congress engaged with the insurrectionists directly, and there's been some evidence pointing to that, uh, or gave aid and comfort to them, that the Ethics Committee should consider appropriate actions up to and including expulsion for Congress. It's a completely appropriate action. How much support is there in Congress right now supporting Cory Bush's proposal that members who supported the insurrection should be expelled? Uh, 54 members of the House have signed on as co-sponsors, uh, including a, a number of prominent members. So it's a, it's, a good, it's a good basic list, but it's certainly not enough to get to where you need action on it. Uh, Cory Bush has suggested that a great way to commemorate January 6th would be to pass uh, her resolution calling for the Ethics Committee to step up and start doing this. There's clearly resistance on the part of House leadership, uh, including Democrats in House leadership. Obviously, the Republicans are resistant. Um, but it's interesting also that this isn't just about the House. In the Senate, several members of the Senate have stepped up and said that um, their colleagues should be expelled if they, you know, if the evidence is there to to show that they engaged with the insurrection. Uh, Sherrod Brown, Sheldon Whitehouse, and others have been very specific on this, even naming names. And so there's, there's a reality there. I mean, it's, it's something genuine, but it hasn't gone up into the leadership ranks. And I think this is a real crisis. 
you can have President Biden and Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi and others speak to the end of the day and for every day going forward about how what happened on January 6th was was horrific. It was an assault on democracy. It was deadly and awful and dangerous and bad and all these things. They can you know, find whatever words they want to use. But if there isn't any accountability, if we didn't impeach Trump or we did impeach Trump, but if we didn't you know, convict him, if we don't expel members of Congress who engage with this, then really it's it's talk. It's it's uh, you know it's a expression of concern and expression of frustration, but it's not action. And until there is action on what happened on January sixth, I think the possibility that on January sixth, twenty twenty five, we are talking about a much more serious circumstance remains quite real. And uh, accountability drives change. Without accountability. Uh, you very likely stay on the same pattern and end up in a potentially worse place. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.